Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we get together every week right here. We discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. It's the Business of Agriculture, and as usual, I've got a great show for you because I know you're devoting your time to be with me, but not just with me, also with a great guest. Her name is Catherine Lotspeech. Catherine's a smart young lady, an ag professional. She has a degree in dairy science from Utah State University. Her parents are large-scale dairy producers in the state of Utah, and they transported themselves from Connecticut. So they went across country, uprooted, and moved their dairy operation years ago. She's going to tell you all about that. She's an ag professional working in the mountain states. Catherine and I met one another uh, a month or two ago. She was the MC for an event where I spoke, and she did an amazing job of it. And then we also chat a little bit afterwards. And she is a gal with a lot of opinions. I said, you know what, you should be a guest on the Business of Ag podcast, because I want to be able to share some of your thoughts and opinions from a 27 year old young ag professionals perspective in the mountain states. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Damien. I am so excited to be here. And so I gave an introduction. Did I hit everything right? Everything, even my name, you pronounced it correctly. Yeah, lot speech. So anyway, if you're if you're joining right now and you're saying, hey, wait a minute, I may have seen this lady, I don't know. And if you keep up with my stuff on Twitter or Facebook, you might see that she comments on some of my stuff. So it's Catherine Lot Speech. Go ahead and connect with her. But before you do that, stay tuned right here and listen to our discussion because Catherine struck me as a person that she says, hey, I like the fact that you don't dilly-dally, you cut to the issue, and you deliver some of the hard truths in agriculture. That was one of her compliments about my presentation. If you are a listener, you know that that's something that I do. We in this industry like people sometimes that preach to the choir, as we say, because sometimes the choir likes being preached to. And I don't know if that does us all any good. You know, if you keep going to the personal trainer and they say, hey, you don't need to work out today. You look great. You're just doing fine. Why bother? You might like hearing that and say, hey, have a donut. But is that really what you need to better yourself? So in the ag industry, occasionally we have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And that's where Catherine comes in. She writes a blog. And I want her to tell us about that blog right now because I've seen her insights and opinions and they're intelligently backed up. Catherine, tell me about your blog. My blog came about because um, a few years ago, I was having a lot of thoughts that differed from mainstream agriculture and just needed a place to put them. And being a millennial, I thought, why not put them on the internet? Um, and over time, it's become a place where I can, I can say something without just giving a like to a, a Facebook post or, or on Twitter um, and, and hopefully reach a little bit of an audience to, to talk about things that maybe aren't as comfortable, um, you know, like we get at the dog and pony shows in agriculture, but that will hopefully spark conversation because I certainly don't have all the answers and maybe get people to think outside the box just a little bit. Now there's somebody listening saying, Hey, what's she talking about? The dog and pony show in agriculture. Explain, expand on that. Cause I have my definition. I want to hear yours. So, you know, from October till March, um, agriculture, all of agriculture, livestock, crops, everybody has um, meeting season because apparently nobody has any work to do. Um, and it's just where you go and you celebrate your own industry. You celebrate, celebrate people within your industry and all in all pat each other on the back. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but they all start to sound the same. The themes start to sound the same. You have the same speakers and you hear the same stuff because everybody has the same type ag facts. Um, and come on, we are a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. There's a lot more to the story than just, just that little glimpse that we get every fall and spring. 
And by the way, she just said, and we always have the same speaker. Wait a minute, time for me to throw in a commercial. If you haven't had me, or even if you have, it's time to bring me back because I don't sound like a lot of those people. So one of the things that you discuss in your writing, and I, I guess you talked about patting each other on the back, I always give data, and then I say, here's the commentary on the data, and then here's where I think we are going to go or could go or should go because I, too, as a 49-year-old, I mean, obviously, I'm a little older than you. I went to those functions when I was a kid, and I would see this, uh, you know, the local AM ag radio uh, uh, farm reporter come out and stand up there and say, hey, and the American farmer feeds 100, and back then it was 117 people, and now it's, what, 170 or something. And I thought, this is all fine. This is good. And also, I just got that same publication from Farm Bureau. Um, and so I'm like, I, I get all that. But also, it's the 1980s. Uh, we're out here holding on, you know, to a sh by a shoestring. Uh, you know, we were really uh, not well off. We didn't come from a lot of capital background, my family. And so I even as a kid was thinking, yeah, that's neat. You just told two outhouse stories, a, a, a joke that I'd heard at every one of these things I went to before, and then told us we were the backbone of America and uh, that we feed 117 people. That's nice. But what's the next thing? And that's why in my speaking and in my writing, I always say, well, here's the, here's the data, here's the issue, here's the topic, here's my commentary on it, and then maybe here's where I think this is going. You've done that also, but tell me what, what's, wrong, what's wrong with the other folks before we get into your own comments. Well, um, I, do, I do like facts and figures. Um, I am a very scientifically-minded person, and I like, I like data. Um, I do incorporate that a little bit into my blog, but I have also started to turn more towards emotion um, in my blog, and that's a horrifying word in, in my own personal sense. Um, but, you know, you look back on the last 15 years, or at least the last 15 years that I've had, um, I went to all the meetings with my parents, board meetings, and, and again, the whole dog and pony show throughout 4-H and FFA. And um, for the first 10 years of that, we were told, use facts, use facts, use facts, use facts to connect with consumers because you can't dispute facts. Well, look at what we have now. You can say that the sky is purple on Twitter and somebody will agree with you. And so um, beating people over the head, especially consumers with facts, is just not working. And so I've started pulling away from that just a little bit and trying to connect with people on a more human level. Um, you know, try to hit them in their heart. And I think that in agriculture, we certainly, um, we learn our lessons too well. And uh, we're still still stuck on, you're going to convince people with facts. Well, no, you're not. Because the mom in the grocery store trying to figure out what kind of work, what kind of yogurt to buy, um, she wants the one that tells a fluffy little story so that she can feel good about feeding her baby. Yeah, and as you may recall, Catherine, at the presentation I gave to your organization, I made that very point that humans will tell you they're factual, but they're not. They're emotional. They're driven by emotion. They make their decisions based on emotion. They will back that decision up with facts. And this has to do with who they vote for, what car they buy, or what yogurt they pick up at the grocery for their baby. They will say it's about the facts, but it's actually about emotion, and they may back it up with facts. So you're dead on. Uh, Catherine, you wrote a column last week. We're recording this at the end of March, and this will probably be uh, a month or so when people are listening to it. But while we're recording this, we're right on the heels of National Ag Week. Uh, the week here in North America, particularly the United States, where we celebrate the accomplishments of ag, and we say recognize the business of agriculture. We even have a day called Ag Day, and that's fantastic. 
You wrote a column that said uh, about thank a farmer. And I agreed with it because on this very podcast, I've said, can we get over ourselves about thank a farmer? I'm a farmer. And I want to say, hey, yes, I thank me, thank my friends, my brother, my relatives, all those kinds of people. But what about the dry cleaner that stays open until 7 p.m.? and opens at 7 a.m. every day during the week so folks can drop their cleaning off before they go to work, or the Subway franchise owner. Should we thank that person also? Because uh, they're in there on Sunday uh, making sure you can have a sandwich. You kind of took a similar bend on your column. Tell me about Thank a Farmer. So I actually titled it um, Stop Demanding Thanks. And um, in it, I do I do say, um, I confess a mea culpa here because I was on the thank a farmer train all those years because it goes right along with using facts to convince people of what you're trying to convince them of. Um, but over the last couple of years, I, I've seen everywhere, all over social media and the internet, that it has become more of a demand. And that just is really off-putting to me because whenever somebody demands things of me, no matter what it was, um, I, I sort of, you know, I'm like a horse tugging against the rain saying, excuse you, <laughs> um, you can't demand you know, a compliment or thanks. And it, it just really started to bug. Um, because as you mentioned, you know, we don't demand thanks of other people in our lives that this, you know, whoever provides a service for us, um, we don't demand thanks of them. And I don't think it should be any different in, in American agriculture. We are very, very, very good at what we do sometimes to our own detriment. Um, but I, I, the idea of demanding thanks for something that you chose to do, something that is your profession, is just very off-putting to me. Um, and to be honest, if, if I'm on my dairy, you know, um, hosting a tour or something like that, if someone came up and thanked me, I might be just a little bit embarrassed. Um, you know, it's, it, we don't do what we do for the sake of thanks. That's a pretty poor reason to do something, um, to be lauded for it. You know, it, it, uh, this country's done a great thing, and I love history, where when I was a little kid, I was born during the Vietnam War, and... Uh, I, I knew of people that were, you know, 15 to 20 years older than me that had to go. And that was a terrible time. Our country was ill, if you will, at the time. And then the way that those soldiers were treated and then some of the issues with drug abuse and, and post-traumatic disorder, all the things that went with that. So sometime about 20 years ago is my recollection. We started really reversing that. We started saying things like, think of veteran. And uh, Veterans Day has become this thing where uh, we we – almost have overdone what we underdid 20 or 30, 40 years ago, where now it's probably almost to where these, these guys that have been, you know, servicemen and women probably say, all right, all right, all right. I really appreciate it. But that's a good thing. And also those people were going and getting shot at on the thank a farmer thing. There is this, a little bit of righteousness almost. And like you said, you said off putting, but again, we're not the only people that run our own business. You know, my brother, uh, who's no longer with us, was a farmer, and he used to always say, work is work. Uh, you know, while these other farm people think, Damien, that what you do isn't work, he's like, I've seen, you know, you're bumping out on a 5 a.m. Uh, departure for the airport, and then you get home Sunday at midnight, and your planes were delayed, and you still have to be, uh, you know, up in the morning to be on a, the next plane, and then you got to go and be on a stage, and you're right. Everything that all of us do is work. Um, so we should always remember that whether you're in the business of agriculture or in anything, everybody has moments where they probably deserve a bit of gratitude for the contribution they make. I do agree with that. I mean, it, you know, maybe just as a society, we could learn from that and just being a little bit more grateful to each other for all the little things. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I can think of a lot of folks. I was a factory worker, and uh, I worked from the midnight to eight shift a lot of uh, times during the summer. And it was a uh, you know uh, 130 degrees next to the ceiling tile ovens. And I, I, I guess I don't remember being thanked. I got paid, but I don't remember being thanked. So I agree with you on that. Every profession has moments that are thankless. Every profession has moments that you're so grateful to be able to do what you do. And that's what I guess we should always remember, whether it's farming or any other job. You're not afraid to take a stand in your writing. Uh, and I like that about you. I guess that's one of the reasons that uh, you and I connected. There's a thing that uh, some advocacy groups in agriculture do where it's like, let's just play nice to get along. Let's just all get along and tell ourselves that we're all getting along. And there's a large, major uh, American organization in agriculture that I think does that to its detriment. They go to Washington, D.C. They have tremendous amounts of employees and lawyers, and I never see them actually come out guns ablazing and fists swinging. They have this whole thing of, we're just going to have to get along to go along, and I disagree completely. Your take. I disagree completely as well. Um, if there is anything that seriously creams my corn, <laughs> it's the go along to get along, because change was never made by people who just sat down and agreed with other people. Um, I man, I have seen this, especially in the last couple of years. Um, once I moved to Colorado and started getting involved with agriculture and particularly agricultural politics in the state. Um, and as I've grown in my career, I've, I've asked a lot of people, well-known um, people in leadership positions, same kind of organizations that you're talking about, asking why can we not, you know, why, why can't we take a stand? Why come we can't be just a little bit blunt? Because um, anybody in any other industry, but especially the people who would rather that we aren't doing what we do in agriculture, um, have been known to be just a little bit uh, blatant, you know, and rather outspoken. And I don't understand how come we can't do that, um, you know, to be able to take care of our own. And the go along to get along is, is really frustrating when you see a problem. And if anything, in agriculture, what agriculturists are problem solvers, you see a problem and we're being told not to not to solve it. Um, you know, and just sort of sit down, shut up, and and uh, agree with whatever's in the policy book. I just, uh, for years, uh, at least starting seven years ago on stage, I started comparing the business of agriculture to the National Rifle Association. I got a little blowback from some folks that thought I was, uh, you know, too much aligning with that. I just noticed that recently I my, my commentary has been copied on that very thing by someone else in the ag commentary business. But anyway, that's fine. It happens. I always point out that you talk about the NRA, they're not afraid to take a stand to protect their, their members' interests. Uh, you look at other, let's just you know, call it the United Auto Workers, obviously they take a stand. You know, why we have representation, if you will, that then says, well, we're just gonna go along to get along. It's like, no, that sounds like you, don't, you wanna just have a cush job and not actually make any enemies. But that's also rolling over. That's exactly what that is. And um, you mentioned that I, I also don't seem to pull too many punches in my writing. And it took a long time to get there. Um, I spent a lot of time writing things and speaking for people who, who absolutely parroted the go along to get along. Um, and in fact, I've gotten in a little bit of trouble for my writing mm -hmm. once or twice um, from the powers that be. And you know, if anything, if anything's going to make me keep writing and keep keep uh, shouting from the mountaintops, we don't have to go to get, go along to get along. It's that. I mean, you know, come at me. Let's have a talk. Let's, let's discuss this because, you know, we don't have to be adversarial against each other, but how do we ever expect to get to 
to get further ahead um, for a productive future without thinking about the hard things. Well, let me just throw this out as an example, Catherine, and we don't, we, this is not a political podcast, but again, these are issues that impact the business of agriculture. When Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in February rolled out her Green New Deal initiative that she wanted to actually make legislation and she got sponsorship from a Democratic senator, where was the Farm Bureau that said, this is asinine, you're trying to dictate diets, you want to get rid of the nation's dairy? and beef industry because you, an illogical, ag-ignorant freshman congresswoman, believe that cow farts are ruining the Earth's atmosphere? Where was our agricultural organization, one by one, standing up and saying that exact statement right there? None. Crickets. Didn't hear a thing. Did you? I heard not a single thing. Other than from me. Right. Well, right, right. But we can count on you to be opinionated. Speaking (laughs) Speaking of cows. Uh, your background, dairy science, your family was a dairy farm family operating in Connecticut. Obviously, it's urbanized. It's expensive. Uh, you're not going to probably expand. Your family picked up and moved to Utah. Tell me about that. We sure did. Um, my parents started out, my mom comes from a dairy background. She grew up on a dairy farm in Connecticut, and my dad started working for a local dairyman when he was 12. Um, And I come from the kind of stock that decided at the age of 17 was a good time to buy that farm and to go to college. So my dad bought the farm. Um, He started with 70 cows and he and my mom grew it to 400. Now we're in Connecticut, just about an hour outside of New York City. When my folks started dairying, there were about 600 dairies in the county. And by the time that we left in 1995, we were one of two. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents knew that if they had a shot at my brothers and I being interested in any way, shape or form and coming back to the, to the, to the farm, they would have to grow. They would have to grow in some way and they decided to expand. So they uprooted themselves and their three children and moved all the way out West to Delta, Utah, um, which at the time was uh, recruiting dairies for the economic benefits that they saw that dairies have on local economies. Mm -hmm. And so we grew from 400 cows to about 1,200. Um, and for most of my growing up years, we were up actually about 2,000 cows. Um, and then my brother came home, and we needed more cows because uh, we might get bored a little bit easily. <laughs> and, um, you know, the best way for my family to be able to have a long-lasting legacy and to be able to stay in the industry has been to expand. Um, it's an interesting, interesting perspective to come from a very, very small farm and not to be a very, very large one. Um, we, we milk about 5,000 cows now and we ship directly to Dan yogurt. And that's caused a lot of heart, heartburn um, among our constituents in the industry because we dare to do something different. But I will tell you something. <laughs> we are at no risk of going out of business in the next year or two um, because we're not fighting the ridiculous little milk prices that we're at right now. <clears throat> yeah, it puts you in a little different situation. By the way, I've always wondered this. Uh, when, when you hear about these kind of situations, did they, did they load up those 400 cows plus all the heifers and calves and young stock and truck them from Utah, uh, from Connecticut to Utah, or they just liquidate them all at the sale barn and then cow up again when they got to the West? So we sold our young stock. Um, and we started, my grandpa was a dairy extension agent. He moved to Utah ahead of us. And every time we dried up, um, a, a group of cows, we sent dry cows out to Utah and he'd catch them off the truck there. And we did truck, um, let's see, it was about 75 dairy cows who were still milking all the way across the United States. 
Um, they got off the truck twice a day to get feed and water and to get milked, and we only lost one. We had a pretty darn good trucking company. Wow. Okay, so you just, when you do that, that means that someplace along the way, you just lined up somebody in Ohio and said, hey, Ohio dairy connection friend of mine, we're going to unload uh, uh, two truckloads here. You got to run through your parlor and milk them and then uh, feed them and water them and then throw them back on the truck? Exactly what we did. So, um, <laughs> you know, there are good people in the industry. It's a small one and it's a good one. Speaking of the industry, now there has been a little bit of infighting. Dairy, this is what always happens. You know, they always talk about divorces skyrocket when the finances. It's kind of like, did the finances cause the divorce? The divorce caused the finances, chicken or the egg. We see you and I, because we're dairy farm kids, and I rent my land to a large dairy operation. I keep up with dairy a little more than some. We're in our, what, fourth year of, uh, of very poor returns for the most part in dairy. And then you've referenced that there's been some infighting. Uh, the smalls blame the bigs or the traditionals blame the megas or whatever you want to say. Tell me about that infighting. Well, um, I see it most in dairy because that's the industry I'm closest to, but you hit the nail right on the head. And um, this is probably a little bit controversial to say, but I see a lot of the hate coming from, you know, small and mid-sized dairies, um, blaming large dairies um, for, for, you know, the bad time that we have, um, especially in the, in the dairy industry right now. And, uh, you know, we can, we can throw blame any which way, but, uh, you know, just to start with, standing around in a Polish firing squad isn't going to move the industry forward whatsoever. And, um, you know, <laughs> if we could all come together, we could have, you know, a much louder voice for, for affecting positive change that really does need to happen in the industry. But instead, uh, we fight amongst each other, but we're really, really good at it, spend a lot of time doing it. And, um, you know, co-ops or whoever, where we need to make changes, um, you know, policy regulations, they all sit back and just laugh because we're doing their job for them. Yeah. And this has happened. Of course, like I said, we see it in dairy now because they're, they're really in a bad situation. So when, when they're economically squeezed really hard or worse yet feeling that they're, they're going to have to be squeezed out of the business, uh, they need someone to blame. And I understand that emotion. And trust me, I didn't come from much. And I was from that, you know, very, I was from that small Midwestern dairy farmer. I guess it was an average size back in that, in that era. Uh, I know those tough times and I know that, that it's the old thing of, damn it, I'm mad and I need someone to blame. But, you know, we saw this uh, when corn prices were high. There was the infighting between livestock producers and then the ethanol and uh, corn producers. We saw it going back throughout history. We saw it in the 1800s, the sheep people fighting the cattle people. Then it was the, uh, the, the grazers versus the people that homesteaded. This has been going on for a long time. Does it ever end? You know, I don't... I honestly don't think it does. I think it puts a little bit too much faith in humans to uh, think that we get rid of um, fighting with each other entirely because it's not just agriculture that this is unique to, you know, it's the whole entire human condition. Um, but I do think that, you know, we could work a little bit harder um, being a good team because we are a very, 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 very small team compared to the rest of the United States population. And, um, you know, if we don't take care of ourselves, there's nobody being at the door to to take care of agriculture from the outside, at least not in the way that it needs to be taken care of. The good news is I, I don't think that it's a knockdown drag out. If there is bickering. I wouldn't say it's, uh, it's not as bad as, uh, as it maybe could be and certainly some other industries. And, you know, we can even talk about organic versus conventional. There's infighting there. And the reality is all of agriculture. And I, I I'm guilty of 
pointing out data about organic and why I don't like the marketing of organic food, but I've never been against the organic producer or even the processor or even the retailer because if you're in this to make a dollar, uh, hooray for you. But if it's fraudulent marketing, that's the ones where I've always called out the called bullshit. I certainly agree with that. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's another thing that creams my corn is the marketing, you know, and that's, that's a really good way that we tear each other apart. Um, but you can't blame somebody who, if that's a way that they can stay in business, absolutely. You know, finding a niche or, or some sort of value added for their product. Um, I mean, that's what my family did. It just doesn't happen to be, um, you know, from our direct marketing. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm with you on that. I can't, you can't blame people for trying to get by. Um, and to be, to be protective of their industry and also to, to uh, look out for their own, uh, their own self-interest. That's just the human, as you said, that's the human deal. Absolutely. All right. You're a truth teller. Um, I want you to tell me about the professionalism in agriculture. You work for an agricultural consulting uh, and environment engineering consulting company. You have been around this industry. You're obviously, you're around it. You've got some, you've got some, commentary about professionalism in this business. Give it to me. I do. Um, I think that we sit on two ends of the spectrum here in agriculture. You either have people who are professional to a T and you know, you can't fault them for anything, or you've got the folks who, um, show up in, in dirty jeans and a, you know, a misbuttoned button down and maybe their shoes are tied if you're lucky. And, um, I know that they say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but we are professionals, you know, just because you happen to work in manure, which I do, um, doesn't mean that you can't, you know, show up looking like, like someone that you would, um, want to represent your company. And, um, I think sometimes we maybe take a little bit too much pride in, um, looking like we've worked how hard we've worked. Um, you know, just because you don't have grease on your fingernails at the annual meeting doesn't mean that I'm going to call you out. Um, you know, it, it's honestly not even going to cross my mind. Um, but if, you know, I, I think if we want to be taken seriously by the world, by our consumers, we have to show up looking like the professionals that we truly are. Yeah. And I've, I've made this point from the stage for a number of years and granted, you know, I'm, I'm looking a little fancy in my fancy cowboy boots and my blazer and my dress shirt, because obviously I didn't just come from uh, fixing fence out of the De La Rosa. I will admit that, but here's the reality that I tell some of my audiences. This is a two day conference. You came here knowing you're going to be in a hotel for two days and yet you're wearing the same clothes as you go out and uh, put in drainage tile or fix the combine and there's grease on your pants. Now we're a 300 fellow. You have a multi-level, you have a millions of dollars of capital at risk. You run a business while you're here. You're not going to be putting on new chains and belts on the combine. <laughs> Let's realize that you don't need to dress the part every day like you're doing that some days you are a business person a farm person ag person does wear a lot of hats some days they are fixing fence some days they're meeting with the banker some days they're attending conferences to get smarter about their business and i agree with you and i would say also about how you present yourself there is a reality there that I, and i really was bristling about this several years ago i wrote a blog article and i recorded a video when stanford's band ridiculed and humiliated Iowa in a bowl game and played the farmer's only theme song and had a mascot of a cow. It was, it was 
so derogatory and it pissed me off because I couldn't stand to see agriculture be depicted that way. And then it dawned on me, there are times that we allow ourselves to be depicted that way. And it goes back to the professionalism. It does. It does. And, um, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with being a little bit of a hillbilly or being proud of your hometown. That's fine. And that's not unique to agriculture. I think that's a rural thing too, but, um, you know, using, using full sentences and, and, um, you know, having good grammar and, and like you say, just looking the part, there's nothing wrong with that. And nobody's ever going to fault you for looking like a professional. Um, and you know, obviously the rest of the world has noticed that, you know, every once in a while or more often than not, we kind of look like Hicks. I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of being professional because again, everyone that's in this business has probably, uh, there's a bunch of them that are well-educated, well-trained. They have been to trade school. They have handled money and run a business for goodness sakes. Let's never forget that. It's time to be a professional and treat it like a business. Agreed. What does that get right? What do we do well? 27 year old young woman in the business perspective. What are we doing right? I think there's a few things that we do right. And I think the number one thing that stares us all in the face is that we are exceedingly good at the actual thing that we do, which is making food, you know, producing agricultural products. We rock at that. Seriously awesome. Um, and we can talk about sometimes we might be too good about it later, but um, we're really, really good at what we do. And I think another thing that is really important to know about our industry is that the people are very, very genuine. You know, um, nobody is out to, to hurt the consumer or, you know, to destroy land or, you know, to be a bad neighbor. Um, the business of agriculture is messy and the things that we do, um, you know, just aren't that well known, but nobody sets out in this business to be a jerk. We're very, very genuine people. And I think honestly, um, it can just be a lot of miscommunications and misinterpretations about intentions, but we're very genuine people. And, you know, you sit down with anybody across agriculture, you immediately have something in common with them. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. You're a 27 year old. You're working in the mountain States. Uh, what do you see as a, as a person of your age and you came up through 4-H and FFA and you were raised on the dairy operation? What do you see? What do you see when you look at agriculture? I see a lot of change and I see um, people my age who are just driving towards it, super excited and just can't wait to sink their teeth in. And I see other generations and my own um, terrified of the massive amounts of change that we're going through right now. I mean, you could liken it to the industrial revolution um, in that the, the huge amounts of change that we're working on right now, you know, large consolidations are happening. Um, we're getting a lot more efficient at, at doing what we do. So people are exiting the industry. You know, we're seeing serious highs and serious lows in, in price cycles. And um, it's very, very hard to, to weather those kinds of storms um, unless you have the know-how. And so I think, you know, the answer is just change and I for one am excited about it I'm not one that likes to sit back and get bored um, because I do that entirely too easily I like to I like to be looking at what's coming next That's I, I, I love it and you know what I, I I think I agree on about everything you just said there this is the business of agriculture I'm your host Catherine Lotspeech is my guest She's a sharp gal. I said I met her at a conference where I was a speaker, and she did an amazing job as the MC. And I wanted you, my listeners, to get this perspective. Future, parting thoughts, ideas. Give it to me, Catherine, from your perspective. We can't be afraid of change. 
Um, you know, agriculturists are early adopters when it comes to things like, you know, more efficient planting or milking your cows or whatever it is. I think that we're slow adopters um, when it comes to something that might change our way of life as we know it right now. Agriculture is wide and exciting and a fascinating place to be. And I don't think that um, we should be afraid because, you know, we we learned how to do better um, all these years. and we're just going to keep getting better at what we're doing and it's an exciting time to be here don't don't shrink from the fear embrace embrace change embrace change because it is continually coming and i guess i wrote down something i was just taking notes you're talking that we can still retain the life we can retain the lifestyle but to do that we have to retain the business and you're right in this industry we adopt change and adapt change very well when it's about how to grow another bushel or how to use new machinery and those kinds of things. But then we get a little scared when we think, oh gosh, it means that I actually have to change my, my other methods. And so it's, why, it's human nature when that happens, of course. Any other thoughts, any other ideas, something that everybody from the business of agriculture should know on our way out the door with Catherine Lotspeech? Well, if you're looking for a speaker, they should definitely hire you because you're a straight shooter, you're funny. And I really, really enjoy um, listening to your perspective and you know, just don't be afraid to think outside the box. And one thing that I would add is the 27 year old millennial in the room is that young people have ideas and um, you know, pats on the head, just don't do it for us. We wanna be part of the solution. So give us a chance. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, you know, agriculture is very uh, blessed to have a really good crop of young people. So I guess I will thank a farmer and pat ourselves on the back on the way out the door here, Catherine, because I travel around every week and I can say that the industry of agriculture has produced a whole bunch of really solid, well-spoken, confident, sometimes a little too confident, but that's all right. You're 21. You're supposed to have a little bit of a gregarious ego about yourself. Even if it's unproven, that's okay. We'll take it. But we have a lot of really strong young people like you that, yeah, give me more responsibility. I'm here for the training. I'm going to keep getting better and I'm excited about the industry. And so I, I, I'm excited actually about the future of ag and you're part of it. Catherine Lotspeech has been my guest. Catherine, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Damien. I had a great time. And we'll do this again sometime because I like your thoughts. This is the Business of Agriculture. Until next time, I'm Damian Mason.